Hi Secreters! Coming to you today on this rainy Monday from Indianapolis. It is, uh, it's definitely the beginning of fall. <laughs> um, welcome back to The Secret Deciphered where we study the secret book in depth from top to bottom, front to back. And if you're new here, welcome. We love having new ideas, and fresh takes on a 40-year-old puzzle. So, with that said, I was going to talk today about the Chicago World's Ferry. So, in the beginning, um, with the secret book, we had three casks that were, have been found out of the 12 that are buried. The first cask, obviously, was the Chicago Grant Park cask. And kind of a fascinating story with those kids from Chicago. Um, I love seeing the old video footage of them and how excited they were and, quite frankly, how many holes they dug in Grant Park, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. Um, and that, that Byron then eventually let them know they were in the right place via mail and sent them... Uh, essentially a picture of where the cask was buried. So, um, But when we're analyzing these paintings and the poems and the casks uh, and where their possibility of burial is, um, we can often find a treasure trove of hints based on the casks that have been found. And so... Some people say, well, why even bother looking at these found casts? Like, you know, how's that supposed to help in the, in the hunt? Well, over the 40 years, there's been many different things that have transpired and given us more vision about some of the things that were involved in the making of the book and their meanings. And John Palancar also noted that the the casks have essentially been found in the order, roughly, that he painted the paintings. And so he said that they would get, you know, progressively harder with each solve. So it's important to note that the Chicago cask essentially was told where it was in the book. <laughs> Um, so I know that people say they don't think that the fair folk is important and that part of the book is irrelevant. And then you have some that fully believe it does have meaning. It does have hints. It does have clues. I am in that group. Um, and the reason I am is because of the Chicago's world's fairy. <laughs> um, you know, when we are deciphering these fair folk, you know, the first place you want to look is the history section. The history section for each fair folk gives an exact or roundabout area from where these fair folk come. It's also interesting to note in the history section that they are either pointed out sometimes as fairies or 
devils or warlocks or things that actually really aren't a fairy. So then becomes the lesson. You know, Byron says he really wants us to understand the stories at the front of the book, the central stories. And then the back of the book, he said, in the hint book, is just a bunch of stories. Well, I believe Byron talks very cryptically in every answer he ever gave for this book and for the hint book. And I've said before that oftentimes he would use double entendres in his communication. Uh, In fact, he even used that um, term in the book as a hint. Uh, That's a hint for thinly veiled way of describing something, right? Uh, You're alluding to um, something by using a double entendre. He also used what's called doublespeak. And doublespeak is basically a way of cryptically talking about what he means without really saying it. Uh, It's actually speaking in opposites. So when I think about that in relevance to the book, then it starts to make me really wonder, is the fair folk really just a bunch of stories? Or does the fair folk really actually have clues? And I think it really does have clues. And case in point is this Chicago's Ferry right here. So, the Chicago World's Ferry, a hulking, towering, remember there's a tower in Chicago, Sears Tower, powerfully muscled giant, hog butcher, tool maker, and stacker of wheat with a titanic inferiority complex, sitteth at everybody knows by now at the Northwest Gates. So, He gave us some range. He says, in this range, the Northwest Gates. Well, we know now, walking the puzzle backwards, it was at the Northwest area of the park, right? So so these are thinly veiled clues. Boundless, barren, windswept plains surround him on three sides. So he snuggles up against Lake Michigan for warmth. The poor thing. So there he says it's bordered by the Midwest and he's snuggling up next to Lake Michigan. So I I, I can't see how anybody wouldn't understand that that would be a hint or a clue (laughs) as to where the cask is, right? So his habits, for some reason, the Chicago World's Ferry toddles Maybe it's the gallons of Prohibition gin still secreted within. So there we have a um, direct kind of hint to the era, right? We have 1920s, you know, speakeasies for Prohibition. 
we have um, essentially the also the hint to the World's Fair, right? Because there was the Chicago World's Fair there. Which, by the way, who lit the Chicago World's Fair? The city of all white, as it was termed? Nikola Tesla. His very first real foray into alternating current. It's important to note. Because when we think about how all of these poems and all of these paintings are somehow semi-linked together, which is why they are so confusing, because there are hints to other paintings, to other poems, then to another painting, then to another person, that are all centrally linked together. So, his habits, as we've said with the Prohibition Gen, many giants prefer to dwell amidst impassable mountains, but the Chicago giant is surrounded by impossible fields. Soldiers, Wrigley, Marshall, and O'Hare. So there, he's pretty much saying, smack dab in the middle of these, th these places here. So, you know, <clears throat> don't disregard the stories in the back of the book. They hold clues. Although he generally just sulks and feels unappreciated. And again, by the way, this is a thinly veiled political satirical assault on the current mayor of Chicago, which was Mayor Daley, who was quite a big baby at times and let his furor be known in the newspapers. So... He sometimes stomps, roars, bellows, and even bursts into flames to call attention to himself. Three such occasions were the shameless exhibitions of 1893 and 1934 and the Democratic Convention of 68. He is seldom at his best when the whole world is watching. So interesting to note... Um, you know, we know he's implying these dates here have significant meaning. We have the um, the massive fire of Chicago. We have the World's Fair. And then when he talks about the Democratic Convention of 68, um, we're potentially making reference to, um, what would it be, Johnson, Johnson then at that time, LBJ? And so, you know, these are really interesting little critical hints for about the city itself. Seen from the West, he has the appearance of an old, corrupt, degenerate, and gang... Sorry. Seen from the West, he has the appearance of an old, corrupt, degenerate. A gangster in a baggy suit with a machine gun in his fiddle case. So here, who are we talking about? We're talking about February 14th, Al Capone, his Valentine's Day massacre. From the east, he looks like a hopeless, outsized rube, a barefoot village idiot, with hay in his hair and skyscrapers for playthings. The mortals who live in his mammoth shadow, who are frightened... And they are frightened and confused a lot. Buffeted about by winds 
like the despairing shades of suicides in Dante's Inferno. We've talked about Dante's Inferno, right? So um, back in a previous video, Dante was the um, one of the greater epic writers um, back in Greek times, um, early, early Greek times. The winds then themselves result from the huge size of the giant as he contemplates and bemoans his unjustly neglected greatness. So here we're like really pulling in a lot of different people um, and essentially kind of pointing out the horrible things, they, things that they have done in the satirical way. You know, we're talking about Al Capone. We're talking about, you know, Mayor Daly. We're talking about basically, you know, <laughs> some of the not so great people. And yet, without really coming out and saying the nasty things they did. So history. And this is important, and I always say the history section is the most important section for every fair folk. And not all the fair folk are actually fair. Let's remember that. There are some that are really, really nasty. So, arguably, he originates from one of three nations traditionally celebrated for producing large pouting behemoths, Poland, Ireland, or Africa. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because we have to really think about this. Um, one of the things in the back of the book, if you use the origins and the whereabouts of fair people, and you notice that in certain places there might be multiple, um, multiple states that are listed or um, immigrant groups. And so he puts Ireland in the center here. So we have Poland, we have Ireland, and we have Africa. So, remember when you're back in high school and you were, like, taking a multiple choice test? And what was the letter that they always told you would probably be the answer without question if you didn't know the real answer to the question? They always said, choose what? Letter B. So, going in that mind frame of really early 1980s, kind of multiple choice um, test taking, the answer would be B, right? Because the cask that was in Chicago was the Irish Ferry. So, not to mention heavily, heavily Polish, heavily, heavily African American, because remember, when the slaves were brought here, and they were working in the south and southern states. We also had paid slaves that were in the north. But we also have the idea around the African ferry that they also had their own set of migrations. They had three migrations. And that's in another video. But back to the history where we know in Chicago we have a heavily... Polish community, um, Irish community in Africa, but also Italian, and that's not mentioned here, which is interesting to note. So, 
When he arrived on the shores of Lake Michigan, he befriended the wild polecats, who were the area's most populous wildlife, and feasted daily on wild onions. I see he says, the only flora in profusion. So, we'll talk about that too. And I'll go back to uh, just notating that the Irish, whenever he says in the beginning of the book that the Irish and the Scottish are of one nation, so... Fairy secrets coming too. So the Chicago cask was, in fact, Irish and Scottish. Um, you know, they were all of one community at one point in early time. So that is something to notate about the era that Byron got the idea to utilize this cask for both Italian and Scottish. So, or sorry, Irish and Scottish. So then, the onions. They feasted daily on these wild onions, which was obviously something that in the summertime, particularly um, early spring coming into summer, we have the eruption of the wild onions that grow in your yard everywhere in the Midwest. And the uh, indigenous people would gather all of these and dry them and save them for winter. Um, they would eat some through the summer, but they would save them for using them in their uh, cooking throughout the winter time. And you might even see people uh, do that if you watch a lot of the Alone series on the Discovery or History Channel. Um, anyway, his name, Chicago, is the Algonquian word for strong or powerful, which is thought to be an olfactory reference. <laughs> So he's making the fact that he kind of stinks, right? Um, and he really does use Alonquian often throughout the book. So when we think about the Alonquian, we have to think about how that can also be kind of confusing because you have the Algonquin, you have the Algonquian, and you have the Algonquin. So three different types of tribal history there, but he is choosing the Alonquian, uh, the northern section of, like, what would be kind of partially the eastern woodland Indians, but the prairie, or not the prairie, but the Midwest Indians as well. Indigenous people, I should say. So then, a sportsman of note... He, sur he supervised both the Fixed World Series and Tooney's Long Count. Nice. So, one of the most famous broadcasters in all of baseball would have been Harry Carey. We all know Harry Carey and where he's from. Um, and so I have to, you know kind of figure he is mentioning this in that vein, right? If one would appreciate the true enormity, and this is under spotter's tips, if one would appreciate the true enormity and the tediousness of the Chicago World's Ferry, he is best viewed from the air since all the aircraft flying to or over his domain are obliged to circle for hours. You have ample opportunity. So that's an interesting section on spotter's tips because 
it is the running joke of how you have to circle O'Hare Airport <laughs> forever before you land. So there again, if somebody's looking at this poem, or sorry, this fair folk, and they're trying to go, hmm, where would that Irish cask be? I mean, he's essentially saying at that time in 1980, I mean, and O'Hare still today, obviously, major airport, right? LaGuardia, O'Hare, LA. And so, you know, but particularly for O'Hare, because at the time it had a lot more flights, even than LA back in 80, 81. So then it goes on, says jazz giants neglected by their record labels, baseball superstars overlooked in the hall of fame voting and great statesmen unappreciated by their parties are among his offspring. He's very prolific. And if you follow their unsuccessful careers, they will lead you inevitably back home. So it's interesting that he says they will inevitably inevitably lead you back home. Um, that could infer to look at some baseball fields too um, while you're there, because since we're talking about several impossible fields. Uh, but he doesn't really indicate where those fields would be other than the ones that he mentions early on. Wrigley Field and the like. Soldiers, etc. So, and O'Hare. Well, you can't build, you know, can't go burying a cask out on O'Hare anywhere. <laughs> and even then, I'm sure that he still probably would have to deal with, you know, security and trying to get into any of these fields to bury anything there. And clearly nobody could get in to do that. But lots of really interesting connections here to the city. And so with that in mind, I believe there's equal city references throughout the Fair Folk. And when I think about, as I mentioned earlier, about doublespeak, when you look at, you know, some of the photographs in this book and you notate where some places have been found, right? Some places we know for fact where these things are. And for instance, this picture here of the pilgrim. The pilgrim is, you know, he's talking about the Puritans and, you know, how we went into the whole Boston cask, right? With the Puritanical uh, Salem witch trials um, that were based from, you know, some deeply held puritanical beliefs from the Mather family. But this particular picture, while it's talking about the Boston cask uh, and, and its affiliation, he's showing us the Columbus statue that is at the corner of Central Park. So while when we think about trying to pin a picture with a place, it might behoove us to flip-flop the thinking of these two, right? So you have the write-up 
sorry, the write-up over here of the Pilgrim, which is clearly a draw to Boston, and yet a statue that's in New York about Columbus. Now we know Columbus was from Genoa, right? So he was Italian. So it's almost like these things are kind of meant to confuse and befuddle on purpose. And when we're moving forward and we're looking through the fair folk, the first place to start is history. Does it have a history? Does it say this fair folk hails from Ireland? Or does it say this fair folk, it doesn't have any existence that we know of, but its offspring is such and such and such and such. Then it's probably a page of lessons, okay? Lessons that Byron and Sean and Ted are trying to convey to us, but there might not be a fairy association. And that's, I think, where some people can get really tripped up because if I take the book for its literal word and I'm trying to find the fairies, these casks from the fairies, and where did all the fairies land? And if I'm looking at the history of each fair folk and one says, this one's from Germany and this one is from um, the lowlands and this one's from Switzerland, well... What's the Switzerland fair folk going to teach us? Is there a cask for Swiss people? So there are other things padded into this book that are also meant to confuse for enjoyment, right? For fun, for filler. But when you're really analyzing fair folk, we have to look at history first. Is there a history of them? Okay, we've got a French one that says, you know, he's from France and he was in Jefferson's Inkwell um, at Monticello and then moved north to the capital. And then, of course, you know that capital is actually spelled differently in the book underneath that particular writing because... Capital with an A is different than capital with an O. So these things we have to pay super close attention to for the right path. And I hope that it can help you do that. I hope I can help you do that. Uh, I apologize for um, some of my little misreads. I promise to get better as time goes on. But if you have questions and you want to talk about a fair folk, please post it to me. I am happy to answer questions. I'm happy to give you my deciphering and my take on um, the meanings, uh, the meanings of these people and who they are. I mean, there's many multiple people that are kind of highlighted throughout the book, and we are going to go through every one of them. I want to talk about the importance of why they are in this book um, and the meaning and the story and the history that Byron wants to convey um, and there is a plethora. So to do him proper service, we have to really understand what he's laying down. And we can't dismiss things just because it's written on a forum and it's been that way for 40 years. 
I am not of that mind, uh, probably because of a paralegal background <laughs> and that my husband's a lawyer and we always try to dig for every possible bit of evidence. But I think it takes a keen eye and you have to be able to know the history and we have to be able to dissect it and pull it all apart together. So that's what I hope to do. And so I will be working on the next poem. I know I skipped ahead, said I was going to do another breakdown of um, another poem, but we're going to do a fair folk first and throw that in just so that people can kind of get to thinking about that. But also what I've really been wanting to put together and have been working on is in all of the verses, all of the writers that have been mentioned and why they've been mentioned in these poems. And that is going to be another video coming up, um, as well as my question and answer um, session with Rob Geary. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Rick, Rick Geary, sorry. He was the illustrator for Byron's book that came out after The Secret and has subsequently done many other projects with Byron. And he's pretty excited to talk to me about it. And I'm excited to get in his mind frame of 1983 and see what it was like to work for Byron. And I will share that with you all. So have a super day and I'll be back later. So you know the way, fairy on.